Thank you so much, Kirsten and Malia and Terry, for that beautiful song. That says it all, doesn't it? The king of love my shepherd is. (laughs) That's what he is, isn't he? The king of love. It's also nice, you know, we're so blessed here at Village Church with the musical talent um, that we are inspired with each Sabbath. And... um, Every Sabbath, we have wonderful organists who lead us in music. But this Sabbath, we have Donna Klein. It's so nice to have Donna here with us whenever she comes. It's kind of a special Sabbath. I enjoy all the organists and what they do, but I don't know, there seems to be a a different way those keys are played when Donna's here. So Donna, glad you're here, and um, thank you for using your talent to bless us. There was once a man who didn't bother to buy a screwdriver. He had a couple of knives, and they served the purpose pretty well when the need arose. One was a bread knife, blunt, broad. The other one was a bit sharper, a cutting knife, small. Most of the things that needed to be screwed or unscrewed, they worked quite well with the point of those knives. The problem was, of course, that it didn't do the knives any good. (laughs) The ends got bent, and they didn't work so well as knives. And one day, when he was working on a particularly stubborn screw, the knife broke, and the blade snapped into three pieces and cut his hand quite badly. That's what happens when you use a knife or most anything improperly for the wrong thing. We're in the second half of the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians, and the whole passage is about learning to use the human body relating to our physical being, particularly our sexual urges, the right way for the right purpose. Paul says some remarkable words in this passage and makes clear that sexual immorality was one of the most serious issues that was faced by the church in Corinth. And he begins with some popular slogans that the people in Corinth were using and the church was repeating to justify their actions. And Paul's response to those sayings gives us a powerful truth that I think will reshape the way we relate to life and to sexuality. So, here we go. One that was said was, I have the right to do anything. That was a watchword in Corinth and in the church. Do as you please. You're wise. You're able to know. Choose what you think is best. That attitude, that freedom, quote, unquote, plagued the church. And it was the underlying root of a lot of the problems, in fact, most of the problems that troubled Paul about the church and should have troubled them as well. 
A couple of weeks ago, we talked about one of those sore spots. You remember that fellow in the church, a church member that was shacking up with his father's wife. We talked about that one. And last week, we saw how the community was being destroyed, the church community in Corinth was being destroyed by the squabbles that were being litigated between church members. We talked about that. They were squandering their freedom, and Paul had some good advice for them. It comes from the book of Galatians, but it applies here as well. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. The gospel does bring freedom in Christ. Lawbreakers become law obeyers. Liars become truth tellers. Thieves stop thieving. Drunkards sober up. Swindlers stop their gaming. Self-absorbed people become community builders. And that's what the church in Corinth was. But as we talked about the last, last week, the last verse, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. That's a before and after for every one of us. We were each one somewhere in that category, unclean, unpure, but washed, self-centered, but now God-centered set apart for God and His service. The ungodly we once were became in a right relationship with God. And that's what happened in Corinth. And that's what happens in our lives. That's what happens to us here at Village Church. The good news changes lives like it's doing today, like we witnessed today with Keith being baptized. It's changing lives But some people in Corinth embraced a different gospel. They exchanged God's expensive gift of grace, the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ, for us, and turned it into cheap grace, where there's no turning from destructive ways, no obedience to God's commandments. No walking in devoted discipleship. Cheap grace. And as if it didn't matter or God didn't care how they lived their lives after they received the gift of grace, that's how they did it. But unfortunately for them, God does care how we live our lives after we receive His grace. But they embraced in Corinth Uh, saved and all is well no matter what I do mentality. They misunderstood the good news calls followers of Christ to walk in Christ's steps. And it means that their lives now become model lives patterned after Jesus' own life. In Paul's day, the culture in Corinth was really seedy. I mean, really, it's hard for us to even imagine the 
sexual mores that were part of that culture at that time. A wife had her place in the home. She was to care for the home and bear children. That was her spot in that day. And the husband, well, he was free to roam, kind of like a dog. Remarkably, after receiving Christ as Savior, some Christians in Corinth continued that same sort of self-destructive, self-centered life that they had known in the world. And this is how they justified it. I have the right to do anything. That's what they're saying. I have the right to do anything. The New King James puts it this way. All things are lawful for me. They evidently had picked up a note from Paul's good news, the gospel, the, the freedom that Paul talked about in Jesus Christ. But they took that good news, that truth, and drove it into the ground. Instead of freedom from sin, they, and freedom to godly living, they perverted this and thought it to be freedom to do whatever they wished and making everything permissible. It's hard for me to imagine how this even worked how they even thought this through, except, except that there was a philosophical perversion that was out and about at this time in history that divided the physical life from the spiritual life. It was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, and it was Greek thinking, Greek thinking, Corinth thinking, but it infected biblical thinking. A lot of times that's what happens to us today. The world thinking becomes our thinking. And it was a major problem, this Gnosticism back in the church in Paul's day. Gnosticism taught that matter is evil and freedom comes through knowing. Gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, that's knowing. So Gnosticism, freedom comes in knowing. People thought that if they knew wisdom, wisdom in other words, their enlightened spiritual state guaranteed that they could not be touched by sin. Whatever happened in the body, that didn't really matter. And they proved this by visiting harlots. It was harmless, they thought. It didn't hurt anybody, they thought. It was strange thinking, I think. <laughs> strange thinking. Almost as outlandish as some of the weird thinking that we come up today with to justify some of the things that we do in the name of God. There's a bit of that strange thinking still in our world today, in Christianity today you know that the largest segment of Christianity imagines that their future hope comes in what we might call disembodied terms. <laughs> they divide the human soul from the human body and they expect that that soul removed from the body will fly away when death comes. 
And this is completely contrary, as you know, to the hope that God gives us in His Word through Christ. The Bible is clear that there's no separation between the body and the spirit, between the soul and the physical being. The physical body is not evil and the spiritual good. When God made the earth, He pronounced it all good. Genesis 1.30 says, God saw all that He had made and it was very good. At creation, when God breathed into Adam, His first life-giving breath, breathing into this pile of dust, and suddenly humanity was. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And at the end of time, when Jesus returns, the same thing is going to happen, so to speak. The dead in Christ will be raised and reconstituted physically and in a physical body, immortalized, but still going to heaven. In fact, Paul spends a whole chapter, a chapter which we will get to eventually, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, talking about that future, that future that we have in Christ where the mortal puts on immortality. But the apostle is clear. The physical being is an integral part of the Christian faith. Our physical being is part of our spiritual experience. The body and the soul, the physical and the spiritual, are one. They cannot be separated. We understand that, but there's a lot who believe in this dualism. It has captured much of Christianity. But there is no dualism in Christianity. The earth matters. The mortal matters. Our bodies matter. What we do to our bodies matter. Our bodies have a future. Think of that. Our bodies have a future. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, 53, the perishable must put, clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. Yes, this body, yes, immortalized, yes, transformed and imperishable, yes, but I need to think that this body has a future. This being has a future. What I do to it now has some impact on what I will be and who I am. So this is Paul's first point. That is, body matters. <laughs> body matters. The church in Corinth was infected with the lie of autonomy. I have the right to do anything, they said. That's how the wise people reasoned in Corinth. But Paul responds, you may say that I can do anything, I have the right. But Paul says, verse 12, but not everything is beneficial. Yes, you may feel like you have the right and the freedom to do what you wish. There may be nothing illegal about it. But that doesn't mean it's helpful. That doesn't mean it's good. It may be hurtful, even though it may be legal, Paul says. Everything may be lawful for me in some sense of the word, but that doesn't mean that it's the best thing for me. That's the truth that's important today as well. huh? I can use a knife for a screwdriver. I could do that if I want to. I could even use a spoon if I wanted to, I suppose. But when it comes to mealtime, that tableware wouldn't be the best, would it? 
It wouldn't be the best. In fact, I'd be in big trouble in my home. (laughs) Christian freedom means that my appetites, my habits, my culture are not allowed to give me orders. I have the right to do everything, Paul says, but I will not be mastered by anything. Here is another way that Paul brings the point at home. I may have the right to an action. I may have the right to behavior. It may be legal and maybe even commonplace, but it must not be controlling me. There are a lot of things that control us. I like the way that Dr. Ivan Blazin puts this. The question was not whether I have authority to do anything I want, but what, whether anything, I, anything should have the authority to do what it wants with me. Did you get the change there? I didn't even read it very well. But that's the way it is with so many things. With alcohol, with drugs, with sexuality, they can dominate. They can control. I can become a slave. A slave. And fall under the control of something that I may say I'm free to do but I become enslaved. And it's a truth that promiscuous intimacy creates slavery to passion. That's a truth. It enslaves. It controls. It contorts my brain. It creates destructive neural pathways They know that today. That change my person. That distort my being and my social interactions. That's the power that it has over me. Now Paul doesn't deny that God made our bodies and so sexuality is good. But he does argue for the proper use of this good thing. And he denies that their purpose is fulfilled just by any intimate activity just because it's something that we can do doesn't mean it's the best thing to do he says there in verse number 12 you say food for the stomach and stomach for food and god will destroy them both in other words what paul is doing is using the the natural argument it goes something like this the food and stomach were made for each other they fit together in the same way Our bodies were designed for intimacy. So, let's do what comes naturally. There's nothing wrong with it. And he goes on to say, and God will destroy them both. In other words, what you do in the body, Paul is saying that that this is what the people were thinking, what you do with your body doesn't really make a big deal because it's someday just going to be gone anyway. If you're hungry, you should eat. Eat anything that pleases you. If, you're, if you have sexual urges, those were made by God to be satisfied. Satisfy them anyway. It doesn't matter. Does that sound a bit like today or what? What's wrong with it? Everybody's doing it. Which leads Paul into a second truth that he has for the church in Corinth and for us. And that is, My body is the temple. I have a body temple. God lives in me. 
That is an amazing thought. God lives in you. He says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. My body is meant to be for God, not for lust. That's what Paul says. It belongs to somebody. It belongs to the living and risen Christ. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. My body belongs to God. I'm united with him in a most intimate relationship, a most intimate union. And Paul says in verse 17, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Think about that for a minute. We are one with him. That union is even deeper than the most and deepest of human relationships. So when I give myself to illicit activities, I'm not only being unfaithful to him, it's like I'm using this special place, this body, this holy thing that belongs to him, and I'm joining it to something that is unholy. It's impure. And when that happens, when I do that, something deep and disturbing occurs. Something terrible is unleashed. In the early morning hours of April 26, 1986, a testing error caused the explosion of the Chernobyl nuclear power station in Ukraine. You remember, some of you remember that well. A radioactive fire erupted and burned for 10 days, expelling 190 tons of toxic material. The explosion unleashed 100 times the amount of radiation that occurred in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 100 times. Over 7 million people were exposed to deadly radioactive material. There's a common misconception of those days back in 1986, and that is that only a few people died as a result of the Chernobyl disaster. That is true. Immediately, there were only a few that died. 31 of the power station workers exposed to high doses of radiation died quickly, three months, and they were dead. But another 25,000 people have died since then. 25,000 firefighters, 25,000 soldiers, 25,000 people involved in the cleanup operations. They died. They died of various things, but they died because of that. The case of millions of others that were exposed is still pending, and the ramifications are being felt for decades. As tragic as it may seem, that pales in comparison to the enormity of the effect of sexual sin. 
That's small compared to what's going on in the world today. It's like a toxic cloud. It's a silent killer that's overshadowing our society. And it burns and destroys the character. Paul warns the person who thinks that he can he can live and continue to expose himself to this toxic fume of lust and not be affected is deceived. He doesn't know that this silent killer is already at work in his soul. And as with any kind of sin, when I continue in it, It's like throwing myself repeatedly into a consuming fire that won't relent until I'm completely destroyed. The psalmist said, can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. You get burned. Physical intimacy is never casual. It forms a bond for good in marriage, for bad in infidelity. God designed this to be special. He designed the physical relationship to forge and express a special union between married people. There's no such thing as momentary sexual act that satisfies a temporary urge doesn't happen. It creates a mysterious but real union. That's, what Paul, that's why Paul uses the words from, from Genesis 2.24. He says, for it is said, the two will become one flesh. Paul uses that here, talking about this in the, in, to the, Corinth, uh, the, the church in Corinth. That's what happens in marriage, Paul says. When we... But when we engage in this activity, sexual activity outside of marriage, an illegitimate union is formed that destroys our union with Christ. That's why Paul says in no uncertain terms, (coughs) flee, flee from sexual immorality. That's what he says. It's a sin against my own body because it moves into this special union that I have with Christ and it makes a bond between where it should be my Lord and me. It makes a bond between me, my body, and the world, the sinful world. I'm not sure, but maybe when Paul said these words, flee from sexual immorality, maybe he had in mind the story of Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife, maybe he had that story in mind when he said those words, flee from it, run from it. And every person knows when and where that moment comes to flee. It may be a book, maybe a magazine, maybe a website, but Paul says flee. It destroys flee it defiles flee it corrupts and the damage is tragic because 
Well, this is Paul's point. Because I'm the temple of God. The Spirit of God lives in me. He says, verse 19, don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You know, our culture knows very little of this. We don't have any holy places anymore. We don't have in our culture holy places, temples. But in Paul's day, yeah, they knew about these holy places. They knew. And they knew about the temple, the singular place for God's dwelling place. Such was the case in Old Testament times. But God doesn't have a temple today. He has you. He has me. We are his temple. He lives in you. He lives in me by the person of his spirit. And I have to say, catch your breath. (laughs) Catch your breath. It's a life-transforming thought that God lives in me by his spirit. Think of it. The reality of God living in me The presence of his being in my body raises holiness to a whole new level. Culture and commonly accepted norms may make relationships outside of marriage common than ordinary. Yeah, that may happen. I mean, that may be the case. It may be easy today to find these things. They're so prevalent that it almost feels inescapable. But it's destructive. It's destructive. And it desecrates the moral imagination. And Paul says, flee, run, run. The Holy Spirit lives in you. The Holy Spirit has made a home in your being, your personal home to God. This place, my place, your place, is God's place. Tread softly, carefully. Paul's final point is even more direct and even more powerful. Our bodies are not just the temple. Our bodies are also purchased. That's his final point. He says, you're not your own. You're bought at a price. The presence of the Spirit testifies to this important truth. I've been bought with a price. I belong to Christ. How? How? Well, it happened by a very expensive exchange. It came at a great price. The death of Jesus Christ for me, for you, Paul says it a little bit later, Christ died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. And once I accept that truth, that Christ died for my sins, all the talk about doing my own thing, having my own way, all those things, all those things, independence, self-sufficiency, they all become nonsense. Nonsense. I'm not free to do anything I choose. I'm not free to invent my own standards and say what's right or wrong for me. I'm bound 
I'm bound by a life-saving, life-transforming relationship with God and Jesus Christ. I'm bound, I'm honor-bound, I'm grateful-bound to a relationship of obedient faithfulness to Christ. Paul says, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You know what? No one can ever stop being someone who has been bought with a high price, no matter what you do. No one can stop being that person, no matter who you are. Jesus paid a price for you. He paid a price for you, the price of his own life for you, his own blood for you, to rescue you, to rescue me, human beings, ordinary sinners, great and small. He did that. You know, you pay a lot of money for an ordinary book. If you pay a lot of money for, for a book, okay? If you pay a lot of money for a book, a wonderful book, you don't start tearing the pages out and using them to make notes. You don't do that with a special book, a wonderful book. You don't use it to tear pages out and make shopping lists. If you pay a lot of money for a book, you treat it carefully. You pay a lot of money for a home, a lovely home. You don't go willy-nilly painting spray paint on the front door. In the same way, we've been bought with tremendous cost, unfathomable cost. And that should remind us how special we are, how special I am, and how special I should behave. And follow God. And as Paul said, honor God with my body. Glorify God in my body. Discover how to live truly for Him in this life in a way that brings glory to Him. Glory to Him in whose image I was made and in whose unique image His Son Jesus Christ in the image of this one who died to rescue me so that I can be the person that I long to be, that He longs for me to be by His strength and power. Honor God with your bodies. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the gift of grace in Jesus Christ. And I, for one, have too often not really deeply contemplated this amazing truth that you, the mighty God, live in me through your spirit, that you, the mighty God, gave your own son, Jesus Christ, to die for me, that you, the mighty God, became human flesh and bore my sin died for me so that I could have life forever. Oh Lord, may that truth transform me. May your living presence in me renew me daily. May that presence 
Give me and all of us here strength to follow in your steps and to bring you honor and glory in all that we do. And we will give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.